Some of you are going to find this a bit incredulous, but here's something that federal, state, and local governments all tell us to do that we should actually listen to. Eat more fruits and vegetables. You've heard about the health benefits of increasing plant-based nutrients into your diet, but how can you easily consume all the fruits and veggies needed? Well, it's easy. By adding Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity into your meals. Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity is a power blend that has 31 fruits and vegetables in every scoop. Organic vegetables, super greens, super fruits, and super sprouts. It is fortified with essential vitamins plus an immunity boost. And right now, you can get a free two-week supply of Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity by just paying $8.95 for the shipping and handling. And not only that, you'll also get a free frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown American drink. Go to grownamericansuperfood.com forward slash John and order today. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. I don't even know where to begin, friends. Uh, I'm John Fugelsang. We're so happy to have you with us. Thea Harper's our associate producer. We're really glad she's back from vacation, and we have a great show tonight. I want you to know, we're not going to have an obituary for three hours. No, we have a lot of politics we're going to pack in tonight. Professor Corey Brettschneider of Brown University will be with us to talk about the Supreme Court and how it looks like uh, it probably was a conservative justice who leaked it after all, and that's why they're dropping the investigation. Dr. Jason Nichols. Uh, the University of Maryland will be joining us later in the show to talk about uh, George Santos and how Ron DeSantis just doesn't want African-American studies to be taught in AP history in the beautiful state of Florida. We'll also be joined by our friend, comedian Natalia Reagan, for another edition of Shit You Just Can't Say. Sorry, liberals, but laying down the law, we're getting more woke and politically correct every day. And every day we find out there is lovely stuff we grew up with and never thought about twice that's actually quite evil and makes us look bad. And it's shit we just can't say. So all night long, we'll be uh, talking about all the news of the day. And there's a lot to cover. There's a lot of politics. It was bonkers today. But we have to talk about uh, David Van Cortland Crosby who came into this earth in August of 1941. He was born in L.A. Here's the thing. There's going to be so many, so many bios, so many obituaries of Cros. And I watched a whole segment on CNN. They they, they, they never mentioned the birds. Like, I, I couldn't believe it. So you're going to hear most of the highlights. And if you want to hear the high points of his career, you can go and hear about how he dated Joni Mitchell and all that stuff. You know, uh, I mean, I, I want to try and talk about other aspects of his career, of his artistry, of why he was special and why we loved him. Did you know his dad? was the a cinematographer. He did High Noon. His dad was an Oscar winner. And of course, uh, David became a folk singer. He came to the village in the 60s. His first demo was cut in 1963 by Jim Dixon, who later managed the birds. And, you know, he was bouncing around New York, L.A., trying to figure out what he was going to do. He was in Los Angeles, and he got to know Roger McGuinn, who's also a friend of the show, and of course, Gene Clark. They were performing as a duo at the Troubadour in L.A., and David just began, while they were singing, he would just come on stage and add his harmonies to whatever they were singing. And it happened so effortlessly and so beautiful, they became a trio, and they were called the Jet Set. They got a drummer, 
and they began to really refine a different kind of folk rock. And they decided to do uh, their hand at trying to cover a new Bob Dylan song called Mr. Tambourine Man in August of 1964 with Chris Hillman on bass. And it was that demo that landed them their contract with Columbia Records and the Jet Set changed their name to The Birds. So many great songs. Uh, I mean, Crosby wrote Eight Miles High. And of course, he contributed so much to The Birds sound. And then it didn't work out. Here's what I say to everybody. There's a great movie about David Crosby's life that tells his story better than anything I can do. And uh, it's called Remember My Name. It was produced by our friend Cameron Crowe, directed by the great A.J. Eaton. And it's all the beauty and chaos of David with blunt honesty, bravura filmmaking. And it's worth watching just for the animated scene where he's fired from the birds. The movie is so creative, they literally turned it into a cartoon <laughs> when he's fired. And then, of course, that wound up being one of the best things that ever happened to him. You know, they, they they fought a lot. He'd written the song Triad, his polyamorous song that we talked about on this show a few times for the Birds album. And the band recorded it, but they didn't want to do it. They wanted to put out a cover of a, a Carole King song. And Crosby was furious that they were using an outside songwriter. And, you know, one of the reasons why they had a problem with David was he'd make a lot of political speeches on stage. Listen to the Monterey Pop Festival if you can hear the... I mean, it's why he got fired. So... He hung out with Stephen Stills, and at Joni Mitchell's house one night in 1968, they met a British man from the band The Hollies named Graham Nash. And that's it. I mean, the three of them got together. They got signed to Atlantic Records. Their first album was called Crosby, Stills, and Nash in May 1969. Went right to the top ten. Um, Grammy for Best New Artist. Dave wrote uh, Wooden Ships for that album. Guinevere, Long Time Gone, which he wrote after RFK was killed. And then he he did great solo albums, and he did four records with just with just uh, Graham, which are wonderful. Just that their two voices together are great. And one of the things I also want to say is that you know, I, I never asked him about doing a Crosby, Stills, Nash reunion. I mean, I, I would talk about it how how I hate people asking him about it because it's the same reason I would never ask Robert Plant about a Led Zeppelin reunion. Because the quality of the solo albums David was releasing in the last 10 years was so high. If I could say one thing about David Crosby, I think he would approve of me pimping him this way. Exploit this death and check out his last five solo albums, starting with Cros in 2014, then Lighthouse in 2016, Sky Trails in 2017, Here If You Listen, which we did a town hall for in 2018, and For Free in 2021 he also released a beautiful live album last year with his new band i think he'd want all of those to be to be hyped but and, and by the way i think graham has put out beautiful terrific solo albums during this time Stephen still his album with judy collins is gorgeous but i think david crosby made it to 81 years of age for two reasons one was uh his wife jan who i just adore and the other was the fact that he kept on creating and putting out new music. He talked very frankly about the fact that he shouldn't be here, that he was one of the ones from from rock who lived, so many who didn't make it, and Crosby shouldn't have made it. I mean, the, the amount of abuse he put himself through. But he said that he had a purpose. Because he hadn't died, he had a purpose. And it was to make music, and that was his spirituality. That was his religion, his wife and creating. And he showed there's no better way to grow old than grow old doing something you are passionate about. The first time I ever saw him live, I was a kid. I was a seat filler at the Grammys, and he was singing backup for Phil Collins on Another Day in Paradise. And, and, and then it won uh, Song of the Year. 
and, and you, you, the tributes will all talk about, you know, his big bands. But I want to point out that he he lent his voice to so many great songs by other artists, just as harmonies, Jackson Brown and James Taylor. Listen to his harmonies on Bob Dylan's Born in Time from uh, 1990. He, of course, struggled a lot, and he struggled very publicly. And when I was a kid, he was famous for going to jail for drugs and having guns. John Lovitz played him on SNL and and a Celebrity Jeopardy. You know, it it, it was a lot of negative tabloid headlines. And then he had a lot of positive tabloid headlines because he, via sperm donation, was the biological dad of uh, Melissa Etheridge and Julie Cypher's child. And then he was reunited. 25 years ago with his son james raymond who he had put up for adoption and they formed a band together with uh jeff pivar it's like jazz and rock and they they called the band cpr it's worth checking out and by the way and as a fusion artist i mean crosby was folk he was rock and roll he was americana but also this guy he loved jazz he always said that he he grew up listening to you know rock and roll and learned how to play guitar that way but it was jazz that really taught him to understand music and his last several albums the jazz influence is gorgeous. It makes it sound unlike anything anyone else is doing. When uh, Donald Trump got inaugurated, you might remember we did a show at Caroline's Comedy Club, which we also just lost. It was uh, it was a special. Right after he was inaugurated, I called some people and asked if they would come and, and, and do a Trump show to help New Yorkers make sense of it. And we sold the place out. And Rosie O'Donnell came on stage. And Judy Gold did a set. Uh, Trayvon Free, Frank Conniff, Judah Friedlander. So... David Crosby was doing Fallon across the street. He was at The Tonight Show. And I, I asked him to come and he, he finished his, his set and left the green room. He walked across Times Square, came downstairs in Caroline's, and I got him to come on stage and join me. He didn't sing, but we sat on stools and I just sort of interviewed him and talked about Trump and talked about, you know, was Trump the one man who could who could make uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash come together? <laughs> he thought it could, but I didn't think so. But he was hilarious and the crowd roared. And I I was like, I remember I said to him, you could do what fucking Ray Davies does with his solo show. You could go on the road and just tell stories and be a rock on tour. He was great. And he went home with my wife's vape pen. He stole my wife's vape pen that night. And she considered it a great honor. Also, if you're on Twitter, you probably know David Crosby. Maybe you follow him. He's amazing on Twitter. He's fearless and he just never holds back. He's David Crosby. That's what he does is not hold back. Um, I just saw a great, great, great one where someone asked him what he thought of the doors. Oh, my God. Let me pull it up. Someone said to him on Twitter, David, what do you think of the doors? He said, basically sucked. Guitar and drums pretty okay. Keyboard was awful. His bass with the left hand was abysmal, horrible, square wheel bad. And Morrison was no effing good as a singer or poet. Poser. Sorry. You know, he he used to come the first time he came on, he just railed against Kanye West. And I was like trying to turn him on to good hip hop. I was saying, you got to listen to Mos Def. And and uh, and I tried defending Kanye West as a rapper. I'd like to apologize to David. He he was right. He, he, he was right all along. And there's also another thing I got to mention. Yes, he really did come to Frank Conniff's birthday party. That was a running gag on the show. All the years Frank was there that Cross came to his birthday party. But he really did. We threw Frank a birthday party in our backyard. They, they're both uh, they're both August babies. And um, <laughs> David and Jan showed up and like the comics were all there. And it was a, Judah Freelander was there, David Feldman and uh, just a riot. And there's pictures of it. And yes, that was one of the greatest days of Frank Conniff's life. And David Crosby knew it. And he was so happy to bring joy. I just it, it's like someone I've never I've known my whole life. You know, it's like one of these artists. And we talk all the time on the show about how we're about to enter the era of the classic rock artists really leaving us. 
I mean, we lost Tom Petty, we lost George Harrison, we lost Bowie and Prince, but it's it's going to start happening more and more as they're in their 80s. And all I can think of is all the different cultural... You know, you know David Crosby acts as a pirate in Steven Spielberg's Hook? Yeah, he's 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 in a whole scene in the movie. And and um you know Dennis Hopper based his whole look at Easy Rider off of David Crosby? It's like this. I could do this all night. Graham Nash said he was feeling a deep and profound sadness over the loss. He said, um, I know people tend to focus on how volatile our relationship has been at times, but what has always mattered to David and me more than anything was the pure joy of the music we created together, the sound we discovered with one another, and the deep friendship we shared over these many long years. So God bless Mr. David Crosby. God bless his family. Thank you for all the great music. And um, I should also point out, the media is rightfully celebrating that David was in two different bands in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And he is. He's in Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and he's in The Birds. But if I may, one of my pet topics in life is the fact that Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young is a completely different band and deserves to be inducted in their own right. And I think he would approve of me completely hijacking everything and pushing that narrative. <sighs> the music is still there and we can all enjoy all the great birds albums and the Crosby, Stills and Nash, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, all the Crosby, Nash albums, all the solo albums, the band CPR, his band with his son. And we can all say we got to be alive at the same time as this brilliant, beautiful, infuriating, angelic madman. Thank you, David Crosby. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We are celebrating the life and the music and the enormous personality of our good friend uh, David Crosby tonight. Right now, however, the world's on fire, so let's pay attention to that with one of our favorite guests. Professor Corey Brett Schneider enriches the lives in the poli-sci department at Brown. You've read his stuff in Time Magazine, the New York Times. You should get his book, The Oath in the Office, a guide to the Constitution for future presidents at your favorite bookstore. Also, his Penguin Liberty series books on free speech, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's notable cases, and impeachment. Professor Brett Schneider, welcome back. Thanks, John. Looking forward to talking. And of course, uh, very sad to hear the news. Uh, it was a, a pleasure and an honor to get to meet uh, David Crosby in one of your um, That's right. sessions. <laughs> I think and, uh, I was going you know, to ask around you. for a long time. I've met a lot of people <laughs> that way. 
And uh, but that I, was one of the real, you know, really really nice that's, ones. And oh, thank you, Professor. And, yeah, really amazing. And the and it was, you know, when the show was in the afternoon, so it had a sort of nice relaxed vibe to it. I know, as opposed as opposed to this, you know, lethargic, awkward thing we do at night. I, I'm, I'm with you. So I, I know. <laughs> Meeting in um, the middle of the night, <laughs> uh, Corey. I, I gotta I, I gotta begin by asking you about maybe the least surprising headline of the young year, which is that, um, in spite of John Roberts' best efforts, <laughs> the whole Supreme Court probe has failed to find who it was that leaked. <laughs> The Dobbs ruling, which took away the federal constitutional right to abortion. Um, is this the surest sign yet, Professor, that it had to have been a Republican? And that's why we're never going to know. I mean, that's the first thing I saw when I, I saw it. I thought, you know, what a joke. That this is a, they, if they really wanted to find out, have an external investigation, bring an auditor in. Of course, they don't want to do that. They don't want to give up any of their own power. And my my. Suspicion is, uh, and I'll talk about why. It's I think a, you know educated suspicion with with evidence behind it is that they he found a close ally had been the leaker. They thought it was one of the liberals, and it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you know, if I I don't have evidence that definitively shows this, but there is credible evidence, a credible accusation that Alito has done this before in the Hobby Lobby That's case. Right. That's right. And, uh, you know, that makes me think. Wow, if you've done it before, why would you not do it again? And you know, what are the reasons why he would have done it? One was to solidify the decision as written. He might have been getting a lot of pushback um, from colleagues, and so putting it out there makes it too embarrassing to really change. Mm-hmm. It could have been a sort of signal to his allies, you know, that, look, I've got you here, and uh, don't worry. And that seems to be what happened before, a kind of wink-wink uh, moment in Hobby Lobby to, to sort of affirm his side that, that he had them covered. Right. Um, but, but you know, why do we not, why, why are they not telling us what happened? And, uh, there is a school of thought that, that, that has been, as we've heard many times, that said that someone on the conservative camp released Alito's opinion to lock Alito in so he couldn't change his mind. That's mm-hmm. a great story, but Alito doesn't seem like the kind who'd be wishy-washy about this particular issue. Yeah. This had been something he'd worked for for decades of his ignoble uh, reptilian life. Yeah, I, I just do not think that uh, he would... <laughs> waver at all. I don't see him as the person of compromise here and, and the idea that he needed to be locked in. I never bought that for a second. I think maybe he thought that other justices had to be locked in, including Roberts. Mm-hmm. And uh, that might have been why uh, why he did it. You know, he, he he's just given some of the most, including one that I saw at the Federalist Society, the most ideological speeches that you can imagine. The Federalist Society, of course, invites dissenting voices and i had i did that at one point in the conference in washington dc it happened to be the event that he spoke at in which he um you know really talked about uh what an amazing decision citizens united was and and derided critics and in a really partisan way and i guess if you want to know too why i think it was <laughs> was watching that speech and the sort of edge that he brought to it partisan right. edge, we call it uh you know it's it's hard to think that um, that that isn't what happened. The more I, you know, I think about it, and then the evidence about Hobby, Hobby Lobby for me really solidified that theory. Professor, is this an embarrassment to the Supreme Court? I mean, first the leak, and then their complete inability to find the leaker, or their <laughs> their their willingness to say they couldn't find the leaker if they didn't want to reveal who the leaker yeah. was. Is this an embarrassment? Another embarrassment for the Roberts Court? 
I think it's just an embarrassment, but it speaks to a deep problem with the court, which is they don't want to really submit themselves. The lower court judges have ethics rules that they follow. There's, you know, there are procedures to hold judges accountable, for instance, when there are conflicts of interest and to force recusal. And I think lower court judges pretty much follow the rules. That's not true of the Supreme Court. Look at Clarence Thomas and the multiple conflicts that he has. He doesn't recuse himself. So this isn't just an issue with an embarrassment and failure to disclose what they found. Uh, it's a it's a, a failure of a court that refuses to allow for normal rules of accountability. And, mm-hmm. you know, they have a theory of why that is. They are the Supreme Court, meaning that they don't have any oversight over them. But I, I think that's ridiculous. I think they've got to submit to normal rules. And here, you know, if they were really serious about finding the leaker, uh, then they should have had an external investigation. Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, they released this report today. Let me quote it. And following up on all available leads, the Marshall's team performed additional forensic analysis, conducted multiple follow-up interviews of certain employees. But the team has to date been unable to identify a person responsible by a preponderance of the evidence. Professor Bretschneider, they interviewed over 100 people who had <laughs> access, uh, digitally accessed, uh, eight, eight, 100 court employees about the probe. 82 of the 100 did have access to electronic or hard copies of the draft majority. Is it weird that John Roberts, who does not have any history of being a detective, uh, did this on his own? Is it is it strange that it was done in turn? I mean, is there precedent in the Supreme Court for this sort of thing ever happening? I mean, I think the only precedent is this refusal to sub- subject themselves to any sort of accountability or oversight. And, you know, if the judges, justices were acting in a way that was completely ethical, all of them, then that's one thing. But you have not just the leak, but, you know, the accusations really, you know, implicating Sotomayor's name, for instance, I don't know why, was repeatedly mentioned. I don't see what the advantage. I know why. I know why. <laughs> yeah, I we know, know why. Right. Yeah, I shouldn't say. Yeah, it's know why. all misdirection. They, all misdirection. Right. Yeah, misdirection and You know, the sort of disturbing accusation of disloyalty from one Latina member of the court, I I think that was part of the dynamic that was going on. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Roberts supposedly was going to be this person of integrity, this joke that we keep mentioning repeatedly over the years of balls and strikes. That's all that the Supreme Court does. Give me a break. The idea that they didn't release this was not a neutral decision. It had to do, I think, with something they found that was highly embarrassing to one of Roberts' allies. So now this will just be forgotten, right? It's done, and they, they did it, they overturned it, yep. they leaked it, and that's the end of it. Nothing to see here. Yeah, <laughs> Move yep. on, folks. All right. Well, and if it had been a member of the left, believe me, we wouldn't be forgetting it. Well, it sure, be, but, uh, you know, as I've become very fond of saying, if George Santos was a member of the left, he wouldn't have been allowed to be sworn in, would he? <laughs> No. Democrats eject him, Republicans elect him. Um, well, l- let me ask you about this then, Professor. You, I'm sure you know, uh, last week, Donald Trump's um, Donald Trump's insurrection got a Brazilian. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just, I, it's, I, oh, I have these p- images of Steve I mean, Bannon on a beach with a thong, but, but yes, uh, <laughs> Brazil's anti-government riots. Um, it was pretty silly. It was uh, less lethal than our terrorist attack on our capital, but um, it was definitely goofy. How scared should we be? I mean, is this a symptom of how vulnerable democracy is around the globe? Or should we feel heartened by the fact that this and January 6th were both miserable failures? Yeah, I have a hard time having the optimistic spin on it. I mean, I think, look, there, 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 there were a lot of things in both cases that could have gone differently that would have resulted in something 
totally different would have resulted in uh, Donald Trump being the ongoing president of the United States and Bolsonaro still being president of Brazil. Brazilian democracy, of course, is even more fragile than American democracy, much more recent that they've recovered from dictatorship. The thing I find really disturbing there is, first of all, he spent, of course, his entire time in office undermining the credibility of elections. And unlike Donald Trump, he didn't contest the election the way that Trump did, didn't try to stay in power, didn't uh, speak at a speech at the ellipse that led to uh, the riot. <laughs> he, he left town. He came to Miami, to, uh, I don't know if it was Miami, but to, to right. uh, Florida. It was uh, not Mar-a-Lago, liberals. Get that idea out of yeah. your mouth. He wasn't actually chilling at Mar-a-Lago. I know you want to believe that, but that he's wasn't what Mar-a-Lago, happened. Mar-a-Lago, yeah. He was but just another... Nice. He's a completely different totalitarian fascist in Florida. Okay, it's just a coincidence. Yeah. Go on, Professor. <laughs> yeah, too. Something... Just a coincidence, I guess, that Florida <laughs> attracts two, two totalitarian fascists. The, the, anyway, the... The... Uh, the, the brute fact is that what's scary to me is that even though he didn't demand an insurrection, even though he left town, they did it anyway. And that suggests that, you know, the damage from a regime like that, even without a Trump-like leader, is, uh, you know, is, is really serious. Once you start saying the elections don't work, people begin That's to believe right. it. Once you start saying your enemies are, you know, irredeemable uh, communists that, that are going to destroy democracy, even though there's no evidence to support that, people believe it. So uh, it is scary. It's scary because it suggests that here, you know, the QAnon culture that Trump had to began to issue in might go beyond. Uh, well, let me ask you about that because, before, but it's going to remain right. Well, let, let's let's briefly play um, yeah. Joe Biden's lawyer's favorite game. Not as bad as Trump, uh, because Bolsonaro, <laughs> what, Bol- what Bolsonaro did uh, was comparably responsible. I mean, he conceded yeah. and he left. He wasn't the one cheering this whole thing on. I mean, I'm sure he was cheering it on in his own way, but, you know, he, he at least conceded and left the country. Right, right. And I think that's what's, you know, that's a, in, in a way that's a good thing. And it's less frightening than Trump, because when you have somebody at the head of the regime t- trying to destroy it the presidency is really powerful but then again there's something scary too about the the fascist dictator saying hey guys let's chill out and and people don't <laughs> want to chill out they they try the insurrection anyway and you know that that q culture the way they are have been talking in brazil about elections about the opposition really just mimics the u.s q culture and uh you know, for me, the deep question is, I think Trump very likely, There's, uh, you know, we're hoping this is true, but there's a good chance he's done for with Murdoch and others turning oh, yes. against him. Come on, but he's done like disco, really, Corey. Yeah, I think he's going to be here forever. But if, even if he's gone, my point is that the culture survives and we might have something just really damaging remaining after him. Okay, well, now I have to ask if your family um, is safe from the documents that Joe Biden had in his garage, uh, <laughs> the documents that that they let the vice president have. Can we can we point out at what I know everyone's talking about how Biden didn't break the law. Biden didn't lie. Biden cooperated. Biden didn't demand a special bastard. Biden didn't call it a witch hunt. But no one's talking about the fact that Biden wasn't president. What kind of documents does the vice president get to bring home, <laughs> professor? I'm telling you, it's the schematics of like the the the, the malls he opened. <laughs> like, <laughs> 
Yeah, I was, I was thinking of different things. We could have a game of what was in there. I was thinking tourist maps of the various cities they sent them to. <laughs> had no real political <laughs> salience. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, what the kind of consensus that I've been getting with our guests and our listeners on this story as it evolves is, um, yeah. it's complete rubbish. It's absolute nonsense. It's the Benghazification of news. It is Hillary's yeah. emails. It is Obama's birth certificate, and a. The media is going to run with it to give the appearance of impartiality. And B, it doesn't matter if it's true or not. It is going to be leading the Republican fundraising efforts and the Republican propaganda efforts. And we're just going to have to memorize a whole bunch of talking points to refute it because they're going to keep on saying it anyway. I'll tell you what my worry is, though. And of course, I agree with all of that emphatically. But it's that from the eyes of those in the Department of Justice, I'm worried that this really matters, you know, as they start to make decisions. It's different teams, different special prosecutors. But I think you might get two dynamics. One is the team looking at the very serious allegations about Trump, that he intentionally withheld these documents, that he violated the Espionage Act, the concerns of malicious reasons for doing so. You know, it's not just that he liked the neato souvenir folders. It's a claim that is not a credible reason for uh, standing up to... uh, federal investigators and and refusing to turn over these documents, you know, very much unlike the Biden situation where they have cooperated. But from the eyes of prosecutors, it might be like, how can we prosecute this guy when it looks like we're not going to prosecute someone else? Or worse, uh, what if the team that's looking at Trump, um, you know, I'm sorry, that's looking at Biden, thinks, you know, we've got to prosecute all these things. You know, I I find that hard to believe that they could come up with charges given the lack of intent, but there was kind of negligence, and so a sort of rogue DOJ official might try to get a different kind of fairness. Negligence, I I take that as a cue. You want to talk about the Alec Baldwin case, too. Um, No, you know, let me me just put a hypothetical to you, Professor, because I agree with all that you're saying, but I do think, arguably, uh, Merrick Garland had to do this had to do it yeah. to maintain the integrity of the justice department he had to do it and i'll also say maybe it's going to be really good for biden because why not have a thorough investigation so it can be debunked you know hunter biden i support investigating the business dealings of children of all presidents starting with the last one but even more so i mean what if there are already plans to indict trump they and that's why this is happening because they need to say the president is also under investigation. If they indicted Trump because Trump did break the law and lie about it, if they indicted Trump but didn't even investigate Biden, that would harm the DOJ. It seems like you know that could be a legitimate reason they'd want to cover their butts here. Yeah, I don't. I actually don't see another way to have done it exactly as you said, aside from appointing the second special prosecutor. But I guess I worry about that first team, the deliberations that are going on there, and I do think. You know, the Department of Justice has to prosecute crimes, but they also care about optics. They have language about doing justice and having a positive impact on the political situation. Yeah. Even before this came out, I was worried that the the look of prosecuting someone running for office, even though that shouldn't immunize them by any means, and they were looking at him before he ran, I think that probably tilted in favor of allowing the indictments to go through. But if you already are teetering about whether to do this, uh, this can't have helped, you know, I think the look that well, that's the, going yeah, after one I mean, guy but not the other, even if it's you not mentioned- fair. 
but but also let's let's just talk about the fact that, you know you mentioned the optics i mean let's assume that mm-hmm. the president uh, is telling the truth on this count and that it was mm-hmm. unintentional and biden has no idea what the documents were yeah. I, I i find that very easy to believe based on the fact that they've cooperated every step of the way and he hasn't been a whiny little bitch talking about a, a witch hunt but mm. the optics are terrible. I mean, not so much for making the mistake, but like coming out and saying, oh, well, at least it was kept in a locked closet or it was in the yeah. locked garage. It's like, oh, guys, just shut up. Just say it was a mistake yeah. and you're cooperating with the investigation. Don't don't tell me we, we kept it in the crawl space under the basement stairs. No one goes there. I mean, yeah, they didn't yeah. help yeah, themselves. The fact that, it, you know, I think the exchange was is, wasn't it near your Corvette? Well, the Corvette was locked. <laughs> And that defensiveness sounds a lot like the kind of thing that, you know, you might hear from Trump about that things were very secure in Mar-a-Lago. I do trust that Biden's garage is safer than Mar-a-Lago, where lots of foreign agents are probably walking around. But it still doesn't play well. I think No, I it's terrible. Too. I think the other damning thing was the second set of documents. They, they sent over the first and then sometime later found another set. And, you know, that delay is sort of a weird question that could become an issue in an investigation. Was Biden involved in that at all? Was it just lawyers uh, delaying? You know, what what happened in that interim? That, that's the kind of thing, you know, the whole thing should be a big nothing. But th- those those, you know, worries of, of cover up often tank uh, people who might otherwise be not guilty of a crime. In our final uh, 60 seconds, Corey, for all the hype about George Santos, I don't know necessarily that there's any way they can uh, remove him from office. If the voters elected him, it's up mm-hmm. to the voters to recall him. And I, I don't really see uh, anything yet they can prove that's legally actionable, maybe defrauding the, these vets with their poor dog. But what do you think? <laughs> Does he have job security? It seems that way. I think, you know, it's absurd that they're putting him on these committees. That would be the first thing, that, that there's precedent for denying someone, you know, who, who is a fraud like this, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, committee spots in the past. It's been I, I heard McCarthy trying to explain why this is different than other instances where a congressman, for instance, did lots of racist stuff. They removed him from a committee. And, you know, this is complete fraud. And the idea yeah. that we have to watch him opine on foreign affairs is offensive. So if he's going to sit there, let him sit in the corner. That would be my <laughs> argument. They also should censure censure him. And, um, you know, hopefully there'll be some proposal to do so. But the truth is, he's got a slim majority. He's got, you know, this guy is a vote for him, potentially, if he protects him. And that's what's going on here, I think. And let him be the face of the party. Professor Brett Schneider, thank you so much for joining us and classing the show up every Thursday. We look forward to having you next week. We'll be right back with your calls at 866-997-4748. This is Progress. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. 
just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is SiriusXM Progress. I am so pleased to welcome Dr. Jason Nichols back to the show because when I heard that Ron DeSantis was blocking AP African-American studies classes in the state of Florida. Wow. I just thought, you know, I, I think he's already got the racist vote. He's trying a little too hard. And of course, between George Santos and the debt ceiling, it's been a crazy week in politics. Dr. Nichols is an award-winning senior lecturer in the African-American studies department at the University of Maryland College Park. You've read his stuff in The Guardian, Al Jazeera. He's been on Fox News and, M and uh, NBC News. It is always a pleasure to welcome back Dr. Jason Nichols. Hello, sir. Hey, how you doing, John? It's great. I'm, great to be with you every week. Anytime I could be on with you, uh, you know, I love doing it. Well, you are way too kind. Thank you. Um, you know, I got to say, I, I just I, I don't really understand what Ron DeSantis is going for at this point. I, I mean, I, honestly, he's got the racist vote. He's locked it up with his stupid Stop Woke Act, with his little stunts lying to migrants to get them on planes using funds intended for COVID relief to humiliate them and fly them to Massachusetts. I mean, his his attacking the 1619 project. I mean, I, I, his homophobia. Doesn't he have the bigot vote locked up? Were you surprised to learn that now he's going after African-American studies as an AP course? Well, I'm certainly not surprised by it. And, and you know, I think there are a lot of people uh, vying for that bigot vote. Uh, you know, Donald Trump has already said he's running and uh, there are going to be some others who uh, pop out of the woodwork or, you know, uh, from under the stove or wherever those vermin kind of come from. Mm. And it, it's really um, not surprising because Ron DeSantis has actually been very effective politically. Uh, at taking these culture war boogeymen uh, and turning them into policy, using it to get headlines, using it to to get uh, a hit on Fox News, uh, to become kind of uh, the right wing hero that will be possibly more digestible uh, than Donald Trump. And he right. took what Christopher Rufo started this this whole panic over critical race theory, which, again, as you and I have spoken about, isn't taught. Uh, not even in an AP course, um, in very few even African-American studies courses actually have critical race theory in it. Like it's that's a very high level uh, theory that, that you're going to um, run into. So, again, this is something that he's, you know, that he's really, uh, you know, going after Disney. Th this is what has raised his profile. And he's never the smart guy. He's never the guy who comes up with the scheme. He just seems to latch on to it. Rufo uh, created this panic over critical race theory and, and, you know, he goes into the Stop Woke Act. It was Abbott who started, you know, the busing migrants and moving them. So he had to latch on to that when he doesn't even live near a border. Um, you know, so I think that this is kind of uh, the way that he tries to get people excited. Um, and it, it's worked for him politically, but if he were a moral person, you know, uh, he certainly would not be uh, trying to take away, you know, uh, black studies in a state like Florida. 
I mean, I mean, I mean literally look at the history of Florida. You look at the Ocoee massacre. And I think one of the reasons he wants to get rid of this is because people are going to start drawing parallels to some of the things that he's done. Like mm-hmm. that, you know, that migrant flight, of course, is very reminiscent of the reverse freedom rides. That's so, right. you know, if, if you start teaching these kids that they're going to be like, hmm, you know, uh-huh. maybe my my governor is kind of like, uh, you know, some of these other figures in history that we're ashamed of, the Orville Faubuses and, and the other governors and the Ross Burnett's. Maybe my governor is similar, uh, just a 2023 version. And I think he doesn't want uh, students to do that. For them to say that there's no educational value when it brings in critical thinking uh, is is just it, it's unconscionable and it's well ridiculous. there's the thing right and that's what they actually said it has no educational value now currently there are ap classes offered in european history ap <laughs> art history ap japanese language and culture ap german language and culture ap italian language and culture and ap spanish language and culture but Ron DeSantis in the state of Florida, has said that AP African-American studies has no educational value. So my question, Professor, is yes, he's proven himself to be very electable in Florida, but we just had a midterm that showed this kind of race-baiting, right-wing authoritarian bullshit doesn't really test that well outside the bubble. I mean, at some point, Ron DeSantis, if he really wants to be emperor, is going to have to, you know, turn down the douchebag a little bit and start trying to cast a somewhat wider net, isn't he? Yeah, and, and I think one of the points that you made earlier, I think, was uh, he doesn't really have the charisma. I mean, he's really he's kind of the front runner right now. And we're going to see how that works when Donald Trump starts attacking him on that debate stage, how mm. well he really holds up. I'm not so sure that he's even got that bigot vote, even in Florida lockdown. Um, huh. We're going to see how how. You know, I think his medal is going to get tested. And Donald Trump has already said, you know, I'm going to do what I do. Um, and, and we're going to see where that, that base of bigots actually goes. Um, I think DeSantis is is popular right now, but he's kind of a smug guy. I remember seeing him on the debate stage with um, oh, Charlie Crist. With, well, before Charlie Crist, uh, Crist um, Andrew, Andrew Gillum, a- Andrew Gillum. Thank you. Uh, who, oh God, don't, I don't want to, that really broke my heart because Andrew Gillum was such a talented guy. I, I yeah, met Andrew and, 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 and still is, by the way. I still think he has a lot to offer in terms of public service. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Absolutely. But, I mean, I, I think he, he will, he'll struggle to, to get, reach the heights that he could have reached. You of know, course. And, well, I it's mean, an it's, unfair it's, world, but that, that's the way it, it, it it's, works. It's a culture that fetishizes bisexuality in women and shuns it in men. So he's in right. a tough position, but it, he's in a great place to, to, you know, be a crusader and raise awareness. But I, I don't mean to digress, but please, Andrew Gillum yeah. almost beat this guy when they debated years ago. Absolutely. I, well, I think in the debates, he clearly beat him. I mean, he wiped the floor with him because Andrew Gillum is a talented pal- politician with a whole lot of charisma. And, you know, he just looked smug and whiny. And, and of yeah. course, you know, Florida is Florida. You know, Florida is the home of the Okoe massacre and, and right. many uh, other things that have happened 
throughout history that that you know and, and again they don't want to teach the 1619 project because if you read the 1619 project that's right they talk about the highways why the highways in miami look the way they do why oh, yeah. uh you know parts of of cities like miami uh, have a, a place like Overtown, which is completely isolated and surrounded by highways that they can, can barely access. You know, so when you start to really dive into it, you know, Florida is going to have a you know a microscope on it when when you start you know uh, having people think critically about these issues. Um, I, I I think that you know DeSantis, he's somebody who is popular right now. Um, I will say I'm a, a little less confident than you are, John, in the sense that, um, you know, I, I think Trump says things that are just so kind of outlandish. And I think that DeSantis is slightly more disciplined. Oh, uh, I think he's vastly more disciplined, vastly yeah. more. I, I don't think he, they keep saying he's going to be the smart Trump. Nobody realizes that, you know, patio furniture could be the smart Trump. I mean, it's not that big of a bar. But I, I do think that what he lacks is Donald Trump's charisma, Donald Trump's Absolutely. way to rile up a room. DeSantis can do the nasty, cruel, mean, angry, you know, right wing, pissy faced guy, which Trump yeah. does. But Trump does so much more than that. Trump can make a room work. Yeah. Trump's a clown. He's a he's a professional, yeah, he's, you know, reality star. He's an, enter but, but, he's an entertainer. I mean, yeah. if Trump weren't president, I would almost, you know, like and laugh at him the way I laugh, laugh at Don Rickles telling racist jokes. You know sure, what I'm saying? Sure. I get it, it. It's that kind of thing. You know, but, the, the, the racist old, you know, curmudgeon. Oh, yeah. uh, but. <laughs> But, is, but Trump is more obvious about it, right? Like, like you, you brought up the 1619 Project and DeSantis. I, I've been wanting to ask you about this, Professor, because when he attacked the 1619 Project last year, remember when he came out and he came out and said, uh, no one ever questions slavery before we decided as Americans that we are endowed by our creator with inalienable rights and we are all created equal. Like, no one had questioned slavery. I'm thinking the slaves had questioned it. I'm thinking maybe, I don't know, Moses had questioned slavery. There is precedent for this. But even yeah. the language, right? Before No one questioned it before we decided as Americans. He's not talking about black people there. He's placing black people outside the category of we as Americans. And then he's arguing systemic racism doesn't exist. In the state of Florida, they have three different holidays to honor white supremacy. They have Confederate Memorial Day, state holiday, Jefferson Davis's birthday, state holiday, and, and uh, Robert E. Lee's birthday, but no state holiday for Juneteenth. Three holidays honoring slavery, none honoring the end of slavery, but he says systemic racism doesn't exist. And now he's blocking the teaching of African-American studies as an AP course. Literally what he's doing with the Stop Woke Act, trying to make people too scared to even teach the history. He's proving systemic racism exists. And I think he knows it. How can a smart Democratic Party start connecting the dots, start calling this guy out? Because this is what institutionalized racism looks like, the denial of racism. But I think the thing is, John, that, you know, people are Democrats are afraid of uh, pissing off suburban white women and, right. you know, and people in rural areas. Many people who won't even vote for them anyway. They're afraid of, you know, because there's this big backlash. As soon as you say the R word, if you say anything about race, you know, if you 
have anything with black in it, people get I know. freaked out you're and right. they start saying, you're calling me a racist. And, and somehow in our society, it's become worse to be it's, called it's, a racist than to actually be racist. I um, know, right? <laughs> it's my fault, by the way, doctor. It's my fault because when Obama was president, I would never do it. I, I used to talk during the Obama presidency about how people threw the R word around way too easily. It was becoming a badge of honor on the right to be called a racist. And then Trump broke me. After Trump, I was like, no, motherfucker, I have to use the R word all the time. This is how it is. This is black and white. And so you're right. Now, the Democrats are locked in a in a quarter because if they actually go out there and accuse racist activities of being racist, they risk alienating the very white suburban middle class independents or conservatives they really need. They can't do yeah. it. They can't call it out. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I think that, again, you know, we're we're just coming off a of doc. Dr. King's holiday, which, by the way, in uh, Mississippi and Alabama is King Lee Day. Oh, I know. Uh, also, you know when I was growing up in Virginia, it was it, when I was a kid in Virginia, it was always Jackson Lee King Day. They, they literally piggyback men onto Dr. King's holiday who fought to make sure Dr. King was born the property of a white man in Georgia. And, and they don't have a problem with it. And Democrats can't call it out. It makes me crazy. But you're right. It's a it's a political liability to call racism racist and, and it's crazy to me in in alabama and mississippi you know what i mean mississippi yeah. the, the state you know where where emmett till was murdered you know uh mississippi the state where uh you had the three civil rights workers were were killed um you know, Mississippi, Alabama. a state that a state that only that only ratified the 13th Amendment 10 years ago, <laughs> 10 years right. ago, they officially outlawed slavery in Mississippi. Yeah, I mean, it, and, you know, with, with all the work that that Dr. King <clears throat> did in Mississippi and Alabama, and uh, I believe John Lewis was born in Alabama, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. So the, you know, with all of the history that they have in those two states, the fact that and by the way, Mississippi being the blackest state in the nation, you know, 38 percent uh -huh. black yeah. um, and black people can't even barely get a drink of water in the state right now. Forget a segregated uh, water fountain. There's no water fountain that you would trust in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, which I, I don't care what That's anybody right. says. That's a race issue. Can, can I ask you one more thing, Professor? I, you know, as you know, um, today's a day in history. We have hit our borrowing limit and the Treasury is now going to be forced to resort to extraordinary measures to avoid a default. Uh, the Republicans who did not campaign on the economy, who did not campaign on shutting down the government or on uh, demanding spending cuts or the deficit, never mentioned it once. They're now going to play this game of chicken with all of our lives and our economy at stake. Wall Street can't stand it. This is not something their donors want. What should we expect and how scared do you think we should be as we watch Republicans digging in against raising the debt limit, which, again, they did 18 times for Reagan, seven times for Bush and three times for Trump. But now, no. Yeah, I, I think um, we should be terrified, to be honest. Um, I think they're all willing to blow this thing up. I, I think, you know, when you're when you're Matt Gates and your father's worth five hundred million dollars, uh, you know, you got a little bit of a cushion. I'm sure he, you know, is worried about, you know, he's not somebody with a 401k that, that will, you know, Correct. wants to retire in two years who Correct. would be absolutely destroyed 
He's he's not no. someone who needs Medicare. He's Matt not Gates, someone, he's someone who has no security. idea how he has no idea how much a gallon of milk costs. You know, that's the question they should ask every one of these politicians. How much does one cost? And you'll find out that he doesn't. And his policies show he doesn't have any empathy for the working class. But they are hungry for power. And Kevin McCarthy has a very, very fragile hold on this caucus because it's just dominated by guys like Matt Gates who reject normal governance and just want this performative chaos. So, I mean, this is going to last until the summer, isn't it? This is just going to be a really ugly winter and spring. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really I mean, President Biden is in a is in a very, very tough position here because um, he realizes how catastrophic this is. It would be for the, you know, are the American economy. Yeah. Uh, Vladimir Putin is sitting there rubbing his hands together, doing the Birdman hand right. rub, just waiting for this. Although every other market around the the world is is terrified about this. This is going to not only hurt the American economy; it's going to hurt you know economies around the globe. Oh yeah, uh, but you know the, these people are willing to to do that and willing to play with your social security and your, you know, Medicaid or excuse me, Medicaid and Medicare and, and veterans, since we were talking about, you know, veterans and veteran dogs, not only do they not care about the dogs, they don't care about the vet. That's um, right. Because veterans benefits are tied to this. I, I was just, texting, you know, two buddies of mine who, who both served in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, infantry guys, you know, and, and I was like, look, this is serious. This is not this is not a drill. One of them actually, you know, I shouldn't give away, but one of them actually worked for Matt Gates. Ooh. Um, Thoughts and prayers. And he's he's apolitical. He was doing vet stuff. Got it. But uh, you know, he you know, I was like, look, your your old boss is tripping right now. Like he's they're going to, you know, uh put a whole lot of people in a whole lot of pain and particularly older Americans who, by the way, are the Republican base. That's that's why that's why I I don't mean to be flippant about it, but I'm like, go ahead, you idiots. I'm sorry. I've I've just lost my patience. It's going to blow up in their face. It's not going to work. They always try this. It always makes them look terrible. I think Democrats should just let them do it. Biden is going to say, hell no, we're not going to negotiate. You did it 18 times for Reagan and three times for Trump and let them make fools of themselves. I think Biden should have his feet up on the desk and just sweat this one out. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a tough one, though. I mean, it's uh, we saw what they were willing to do with the speaker thing. I think that was kind of a warning shot. And uh, Kevin McCarthy is scared for his political life. Exactly. And And this would end it. His uh, political standing far more than he values your 401k or your social security. This is Bernie Madoff type stuff. And I, you know, I just watched this documentary about Bernie Madoff where he was, you know, he basically screwed all these people out of all of their money that they invested in him. And not all those people were rich. Not all these people were worth 30 and 40 million. These, some of these people were just like, you know, poor, you know, not poor, but you know, middle-class saps who were like, Hey, this guy always wins. And this is what Republicans are doing to their own base. The people who send me the racist emails, the the 75 year old person who's, who sees me on, on uh, you know, whatever news channel and decides to write me a racist email. Yeah. That's, that's the guy that's gonna get screwed. 
Exactly. And he doesn't realize I'm advocating for him. But that guy's going to watch Tucker Carlson, who will tell him that it's Hunter Biden's fault or Joe Biden's fault. I mean, what you've got me scared about now, doctor, is what what if this is all the end game by Paul Gosar and uh, Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates to just use this as an excuse, bring us to the brink of collapse and then kick Kevin McCarthy out. I mean, five of them can do it. And I've, you know, they're going to do it at some point. Like, what if this is all part of a grander, more selfish plot than any of us can imagine? Now I am terrified. It, it, no, it's it's very possible. I mean, I think that they are, um, number one, it, it's really rich for somebody with a, a safe government salary. Those government salaries That's are going right. to get paid. Yes, sir. You know, your 401k won't get paid, but their government salary, your social security check isn't coming, but their, their government salary is safe. You know, that $170,000 that they get, you know, whatever it is, they're going to get that. So they're willing to blow this whole thing up and they'll kick out McCarthy. McCarthy is just a tool in all of this. He's, he's not even his own man. Um, and it's, it's really tragic that this is going to really affect so many Americans of all from all walks of life and all different backgrounds and Americans, I can tell you this for all the young people out there, those of you who were thinking you were going to get student loan forgiveness, like, not happening. None of that stuff is happening right now. Um, and <laughs> Yo, just, wow. You can blame Republicans. So all of that, you know, I, I meet a lot of, you know, young people. I will say two things about young people that is, you know, that's true because I've spent my whole life, my whole adult life working with young people. And before then I was a young person. Um, and they are idealistic, which always has them leaning left, but they're also contrarian. And I think that that's, true. that's where you get some of these people who, uh, you know, find themselves on this kind of populist right. Mm. And I hope they realize because they want student loans. I know what you're talking about. Uh, you're talking about some of my, my, my former lefty friends who are now out there cheerleading for Vladimir Putin all they want. And, yeah. and they, oh, hate, yeah. they hate moderates so much that they'll, they'll, they'll dislike Joe Biden more than they dislike Donald Trump because they're so left. Yeah, I know yeah, those yeah, people yeah. you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, oh, oh trust me. And, and, you know, you and I both, we, we were kind of in the, the Bernie vein. And in that Bernie world, a lot of those people became like these right wing kind of. Yeah. And then a lot of them cut Bernie loose as well. I mean, for a, for a lot of them, I was like, you're going to vote third party in a swing state and get Donald Trump elected because you don't have a uterus. But they, they didn't. It was all they were just high on their own assumed virtue. I mean, yeah. and now they cut Bernie loose because he supported Biden. And there's and the thing is also for all those influencers out there, and some of them are my friends. I actually like some of these people. I'm still friends um, with Jimmy Dore. I'm still friends with a lot of these guys. I know, but please yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, but I don't want to call out names, but I'll just say that some of them. This is this is a, a YouTube grift. You know what I mean? Yeah. They, they make so much money by That's saying they, they hate, they're so left that they hate the liberals more than they, you know, and, and that's how you get, you know, guys who I used to really look up to, like the Glenn Greenwalds of the world and all these people who used to say the war was wrong and be able to call out some of this, you know, kind of crazy right wing stuff from Democrats and Republicans. And I love that they were able to call out both parties because I'll call out Democrats when, when they're when they're wrong. I'll call yeah. out Joe Biden. I have no. You, you got to because you guys were because it's not a cult. Democrats don't have a cult. Right. <laughs> That's the difference. Right. But, you know, Biden yeah. voters are not Biden loyalists like we're loyal to doing the right thing. Right. Exactly. And, and it's 
it's just really troubling. We, we really have to uh, kind of think about what's going on right now with this with this debt limit. It could be so catastrophic for young people and especially for the elderly. Yeah. And if you oh, have God. a mother or a grandmother, you know what? Go out and, and write your, you know, your congressman, whether that congressman is a left wing congressman or a right wing congressman. Let them know how you feel. Let them know, look, I'm going to be voting in 24. You know, and and I'm definitely not going to stand for this. We're, we will hit the streets about this. This is something to hit the streets about because people right. are going to lose their livelihood. You know, this is I, I would put this on the level of, of a lot of other things that we've seen that we've hit the streets on. This is this is that big. People are going to lose their health care, you know, or, or lose, you know, their the one income that they have. Old You're right. black folks in the hood. They get social security. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's how they yeah. live. That's literally what the, they don't have the 401k and, you know, all of that, which will also get screwed. They live off of social security. My grandmother lived off of social security. You know, that yeah, was, you're right. That was her check. Dr. You know? Jason Nichols, it is always such a pleasure to make sense of this world with you. What is the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with all your work? Uh, so, you can, of course, follow me on all those social media apps um, at Dr. Jason Nichols at D-R-J-A-S-O-N-N-I-C-H-O-L-S on Twitter. You know, um, you can and find me on Mastodon. Is that how you create? That's that how you say. It? Yeah. Mastodon. Yeah. yeah. Right on. So I, I created a Mastodon thing. Nobody follows me. but you can. Oh, I'll follow you. How do we follow you? Yeah. Uh, I guess look up my name, Dr. Jason Nichols on <laughs> Mastodon and, um, you know, all the other social media apps. And I just dropped uh, my first episode of my new podcast, which you will definitely have to come on. I look forward to Um, it. And it's called Working Class Elites. It's called the Working Class Elites. Uh, So can't wait. Subscribe to that. Download it. Listen. Dr. Jason Nichols, what a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so very much. Have a great evening. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, it'll be a full hour of your calls. Open phones at 866-997-4748. We're talking about David Crosby and we're talking about, you know, stuff not as nice. We'll be right back on progress. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. 
This is SiriusXM Progress. I'm John Fugel saying we are honoring the memory, the joy, the life, the artistry of our friend David Crosby. Man, he was a regular on this show, and uh, I, he did this show had to, at least a dozen times, and I love him, I miss him, and um, I still do. And we are very, very blessed to have so much great interviews stored away with David. And so if you hadn't heard tomorrow night, we will be rebroadcasting our 2019 town hall, especially we did for a live audience with David Crosby and Cameron Crowe, producer of the Crosby documentary, Remember My Name, directed by A.J. Eaton. We sat down with A.J., Cameron Crowe, and Cros uh, in front of the audience here at the Sirius XM studios in the Howard Stern Tower. It's a great conversation. It got very, very blunt and very frank, and we're very proud to be airing that again tomorrow. My thanks to Chris Hauselt and Thea Harper for making that happen. Okay, we are at 866-997-4748. We are taking your calls all the way till midnight on the East Coast, 9 p.m. on the West. First... Please, people of Earth, allow me to welcome back to the program anthropologist, primatologist, actor, writer, producer, host, comedian, one-time dancing McNugget in a TV commercial, the great Natalia Reagan. Some of you may know her from being an all-star host for Neil deGrasse Tyson's wildly popular Star Talk. We know her because she comes on the show every now and then to class up the joint, be very funny, and enlighten us with new installments of Shit You Can't Say. Natalia, I quiver in fear to know what I've been saying that I can't say anymore. Welcome back. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm always um, excited to, to, you know, darken your, your doorstep and, uh, you know, tell you some things that you, you, you've been messing up for a while. And, and I'm, yeah, I'm here to set the record straight. And well, tonight. You know, yes. Mm-hmm. What, what is it tonight? What, what have we, with no ill will in our heart, what have people unintentionally uh, been, been spreading and propagating and and how we how have we been making it worse? What, what what expression has to go? If you've been saying going native or gone native, you should stop. And I'm going to tell wow. you why. OK, yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah. Please. Uh, well, well, first of all, let, let's let's be clear that going native uh, came about during colonization. So that's red flag number one. Right. If, mm-hmm. if the term came out because, you know, came up because of colonizers and, and maybe it's not the most um, I don't know, uh, correct term to be using, but it, it, it can mean multiple things. Let me just go through some of the ways that going native or gone native has been used. Well, Please. when it came to colonizers coming to the Americas, it could mean or or even to Africa, it could mean basically assimilating or or romanticizing, uh, becoming one with the less civilized folk going yes. native and joining them. And and, and it, it was romantic to them. But was it romantic to the one that they were joining? No, I don't think smallpox and um, rape and destruction is, is romantic. Not not to me, at least. Uh, and uh, it has been used in anthropology by anthropologists. Uh, it's basically a participant uh, observation gone wild, essentially. It's when ethnographers get a little too immersed in their work. And it's been said that they have gone native. But again, yes. it is behaving. The term is meaning to behave in a more well in a less civilized way like oh, the it's usually done again, in that way right it's 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 never like oh you're you you went native you're a better person now you're more honest you're more spiritual you're more whole no it always implies some level of savagery you're right savagery or or, or again like that noble savage where it's you know again romanticized but who is it romantic for who is it for you know it, it's it's for the colonizer uh and then it's also right. used in um 
in in the government in um uh, politics for you know maybe going against party like going against um maybe the the will of a politician but trying to stay uh and do what the constituents want but that mm-hmm. again is uh, you know it's it's used incorrectly and so there's so many other ways that you can say going native or gone native like assimilate acclimate acclimatize adapt you know i mean why not Mm -hmm. adapt and evolve uh but it's just one way that you can kind of just show some kindness to those in marginalized communities that you might be in a meeting and you might just kind of throw it out there i've had friends of mine that have worked in in multiple institutions or even companies and and that term is just sort of thrown around and they're just like, oh my God, do you not even hear it? Do you not see it? And they don't because they don't know. And so my job is not to make you feel terrible, but to inform you and then you can make the decision yourself. If you're like, screw you, Natalia, I like saying it, then I'm not going to stop you. I I can't do that. I don't think it's legal. What about what but, about going tribal? How about going tribal? How would that? Was, is that nope. better? No, nope, doesn't uh, really work. No, g- g- no going nope, savage, nope. going going savage. No. What, what about no? Savage is that, actually no, word. I'm writing this down. Hang on. Okay, go on, please. <laughs> Take notes. Uh, yeah, savage is one that we're also trying to uh, probably either rethink how we throw it around so much. I mean, it's like, for well, instance, sure. uh, Claude Levy Strauss wrote a book, um, Savage Minds, that was a popular um, anthropology book. And there was actually okay. a, a website for many years called, you know, uh, Savage Minds. And it was uh, taken down and given a different name and rebranded because it was highly inappropriate for anthropologists to sort of lean into that term because that term was sort of foisted upon indigenous populations yeah. for being quote unquote less, less civilized and being savage when more than anything, they were just defending their territory and just trying to live in peace. That's right. God, I'm thinking about all the cultural references we hear, like um, like Apocalypse Now with Colonel Kurtz, that he went native. Or uh, yeah. I remember that scene in um, Dances with Wolves where, you know, three hours into the film, he's caught by the uh, cavalry and some guy looks at <laughs> Costner and just goes, you turned Indian, didn't you? And, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's something that it's one of these other expressions. What's really amazing is you know, so many of these expressions that, that you find are just pertain directly to uh, to indigenous Americans, I mean, Native Americans, mm-hmm. the Indians, whatever you want to say it, you know, it, when you think about marginalized groups that have so little power in the culture, it's not a surprise you could get away with having a team called the Redskins well into the 21st century. And, it, you know, it just shows the lack of power uh, tribal communities yeah. have that this kind of bullshit still gets perpetuated. And again, not, not out of any hostility. It's just dumb stuff our ancestors said that we still say because it's catchy and we haven't really processed it internally too much. No, and I have to say that when I was in Cleveland for the Biological Anthropology Conference in 2019, I thought it was highly ironic that the Indian Stadium is now called the Progressive Stadium. <laughs> <laughs> for progressive insurance but i was yeah, like yeah not because yeah, of any values but sucks. yeah yeah oh yeah. my god it's so funny. so i mean again these are just ways that we, we can be better because systematically it's going to take a lot of time to give indigenous groups and those in marginalized communities the leverage that they deserve and need from years of you know hundreds of years of systematic racism yes. um, so this is something small that we can do on an individual level to make it a little bit easier a little bit kinder a little bit just better to navigate life for them, you know, and, and and I always say it might be slightly uncomfortable for you in the moment to have mm-hmm. to sort of change your well, vocabulary. That's the, that's the <laughs> trick, right? There's either there's the white people who don't mind evolving and changing language to be more decent. 
Yeah. And then there's the folks stuck in their ways. My favorite expression, right. stuck. Grandpa's stuck in his ways, which nope. is like saying, no, fucker. Grandpa lived through civil rights and the ERA and LGBT equality struggle and trans and, and immigrant rights. And he still hasn't learned a damn thing. That's what stuck in their ways means. You're either yep. like a Joe Biden who tries to get better and admits that you, you screwed up or you're a Donald Trump who is the same guy he was in the 70s and is proud to have learned nothing. Mm-hmm. And I, I always like to remind folks that for as comfortable, uncomfortable as it might make, you know, Mr. Stuck in his way, grandpa, it pales in comparison to the discomfort that those on the receiving end have been Thank feeling you. for all their life. So well, I don't know that little moment you, of discomfort you live. And, and and you've talked about this in this segment in the past uh, when you've come on to scold me for uh, my my perpetual bigotry um, about all the different <laughs> expressions that pertain to it. I mean, we talked about Eskimo. We we talked about the phrase uh, circle the wagons. Um, we've talked about the use of the word, you know, tribal or spirit animal. And also it's uh, fascinating. You know, I did a piece a little while back about offensive place names in the U.S. Mm. because there was a woman who found out looking at local maps that the creek that ran on her property was uh, from the 1800s called N-Word Creek. And um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, and and she tried to get that changed. Um, (laughs) But the the uh, and the the state came back and said, well, we'll call it Negro Creek. Like in this century, this happened. But, you know, there's only two words that uh, you cannot use to name a place. You can't use the N-word to name a hill or a forest or a stream or a river. And you can't use the term Jap because Jap is obviously very offensive to uh, women from Long Island. What's interesting Mm. is, no, actually, no, it's not. But what's interesting is I couldn't believe how many offensive uh, uses of the word squaw were used for Squaw Hill, Squaw Fields, Squaw River, Squaw Bank. Like that word is just Squaw Valley. Squaw Valley. And and like, again, it's like it's still acceptable because the American Indian community doesn't really have the power or priorities to go after this verbal bullshit. They're trying to, you know, stay alive. And so, you know, it's just nice to be alive at a time when we're beginning to at least begin to correct things. It's a long way from reparations. But I think dropping unintentionally cruel language is an important first step. Yeah, I mean, language is important. It, it it really does sort of frame what we're thinking. And even though the intent might not be to harm, the impact is what we really need to focus on. Sometimes we need to step back and go, okay, I might not mean to hurt somebody's feelings, but what if I do? And how can I avoid that? It's yeah. it's a small step in the right You're direction. Right. But it's and you know, a step. I, I, I learned a lot of this from uh, from a man who went to live among the Indians and was accepted as one of their own and achieved uh, the rank of chief in their tribe. And that man is named George Santos. So, yeah, I mean, it's like it's uh. right there. Um, <laughs> Natalia Reagan, it is so nice having you back with us. Um, what's the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with all your doings? What's going on with you? Oh, well, you can find me on Twitter at Natalia 13 Reagan on Instagram, the same. And then uh, on TikTok at Behold Natalia. I also have a show. I believe I'm opening for Hal Sparks on January 25th at Flappers Comedy this in makes Burbank. Me so and happy because then... I, I, this makes me so happy because I was I was doing my my comedy Yenta backstage yeah. in Hollywood with you and Hal. So this is good. Go on. Yeah, exactly. And that was a good reconnection. And I got uh, I'm going to the semifinals at Flappers for the Uncle Clyde Clyde's comedy contest, and it is February 15th. And I need your butts in the seats so you can vote for me for your favorite nice. science comedian. So February 15th, uh, just keep an eye on my uh, social media. I'll be posting uh, discounted tickets, $10 tickets. And that's a hell of a deal to come see me Flappers hopefully take home $500. 
I would love to see that. And as, as someone who's been trying to get you to be on stage a lot more in the last couple of years, it's really great to hear. So thank you. We'll see you next week on the show. I want to thank all of our guests tonight, Dr. Jason Nichols, uh, Professor Corey Brechneider. Of course, thank you as always to Chris Hauselt and the great Thea Harper. And thank you uh, to David Crosby and the birds and Crosby, Stills and Nash. And thank you, David, for having your words mean as much to me as your melodies and harmonies. We'll be back tomorrow with our David Crosby special with Cameron Crowe in memoriam. Thank you.